0: Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips.
1: Uh, wow. Uh, I'm like Tim. I, I read this book and I was just fascinated with it. Well, it's, it's true. I have uh, follow this. I actually collect uh uh, books on hurricanes. So I've, I've read about some of the storms that are in there, not so much the real early uh, 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 pre-official uh, record of storms in there, but uh, quite a few. And uh, I think it's a very unique uh, uh, experience to read about uh, a compilation of these storms. And he captures the nuggets, the things each storm tries to teach us in a way that just fascinates me. And, uh, and we're going to talk about that real quick here. Uh, Uh, Eric Dold's an an author, but his background and his education is is heavily weighted in science, so I can understand why he picked up on the stuff that we do in the hurricane business so well. He's got degrees from uh, Brown, Yale, and a PhD in environmental policy and planning from MIT. Uh, Currently, he lives in uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts, I believe, and... uh, He's written quite a few other books. And uh, when we get to the end of this, I'm going to ask him which one I should read next, I guess. But uh, for now, uh, let's get started with uh, uh, an obvious question. Uh, Eric, why did you decide to write this book?
2: Well, I had long thought about writing a book on hurricanes, but there was a real problem. Uh, The two hurricanes that I wanted to write about uh, the Galveston Hurricane of 1900 and The Great Hurricane of 1938, which pounded New England, which is where I've lived most of my life. Both of those hurricanes have had quite a few very good books written about them. And one of the things when you're picking a topic for a book, you want it to be somewhat new, fresh. You just don't, you don't want to just rehash something that's already been written. So I put aside my hurricane book idea for a while i wrote a book on lighthouses i wrote a book on pirates and then the uh, hurricane of 2017 which all of you are very familiar with uh came roaring in and we had uh, harvey irma and maria and my editor at ww norton and live right, which is a part of norton uh, had been watching the news coverage. And he and the head of sales, they decided that, uh, you know, we need a book on the history of America's hurricanes. And they thought about who might be a, a good person to do that book. And I had a long history of writing books that spanned centuries and synthesized a lot of information into a popular narrative arc. So they reached out to my literary agent and asked if I'd be interested in writing a book on hurricanes. And uh, of course, I was interested, but I didn't know if it was the right book for me to work on. So I went off for about a month, a month and a half. And I read a lot of the books, articles, diaries and stuff that you're probably very familiar with. And uh, I got really excited because I thought there was a really great book to write and one in which I would learn a lot. And that's sort of a key element. Uh, I tend to pick book topics I don't know a lot about. I'm not a meteorologist, obviously. My background is in marine biology and public policy, but I wouldn't uh, call myself a really strong scientist. In fact, I barely made it out of physics. So when I read some of these meteorology textbooks to try to understand more about hurricanes, I quickly realized how complex of a subject it is. It truly is. But I thought that I had a an opportunity to write the kind of book that the general audience would find value in. And also meteorologists just pulling together uh, all the strands of this phenomenal story, which is such an important, important part of the American experience. So that's how the book came to be. Uh, <laughs> You know, most of the time I come up with my topics, there have only been two books where I didn't have the idea. This is one of them and Lighthouses is the other. But uh, I won't write a book unless I'm passionate about it because it takes almost two years to research and write one of these books. And I don't want to get bored because if I get bored during that time, it's going to show itself on the written page. It's sort of like getting a master's degree in a different topic every Every two years, I'm currently working on a book on the American Revolution, so I've gone in a different uh, different direction.
1: Well, I hear you there. I, I, I remember doing the, the master's uh, thesis work, and that was the, the, main, the main element that got me to go back to work as an operational meteorologist, where it's a good <laughs> job every day. Uh, so uh, how did you go about... Uh, 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 like a starting point, and then uh, at what point did you have a, a good idea of, of the method that you would use to research and put the book together? Well,
2: for, for all my books, I use sort of the same methodology. What I first try to do is write, read the classics in the field that will give me a broad understanding of what I'm uh, working on. I, I remember one of the early books I read uh, was Hurricane Watch, Uh, which was a good overview of hurricane history. I I read Isaac Storm, of course, about the Galveston hurricane of 1900. I read books on the hurricane of 1938. I read uh, Ludlam's early books on weather in New England and the United States, which detailed a lot of hurricanes. I read a lot of articles, a lot of stuff in the National Weather Service and National Hurricane Center websites on historical hurricanes, their reviews. And but what I do is I, I tend to uh, first I read all these general books and then I dive deeper on the hurricanes that interest me the most and I think will allow me to tell the narrative tale. And before I start working on a book, although I'm doing it differently this time with my current book, I usually have a detailed outline and that outline gives me a road map to where I'm going. So for each chapter in the outline, I'll Read tons of documents and take notes. But I have a very specific way of doing it because the internet has provided so many great books and articles and newspaper articles and magazines that are digitized. I can do searches, I can download the PDFs of those books and articles and documents, and then I go through and I read them and I cut and paste pieces of each document and i put it into a file for chapter one chapter two chapter three so by the time i'm ready to start working on the book which is about nine months or 10 months after i start working on a book uh, i've got files that are hundreds and hundreds of uh, megabytes i mean they're huge uh, they, I have to have, I have a hard drive that I save them on so I won't lose them all. So that when I start writing the book, each chapter, I will have a couple of hundred pages of notes that relate to the hurricanes, the subjects, things that I want to talk about in that chapter. I start writing the chapter. It starts flowing. I go back iteratively. I rewrite. Then I go to the second chapter, the third chapter. I do it chronologically. And then when I'm finished with the manuscript, I go back to the beginning and I read it over again multiple times. I cut and paste things. I cut some things out. I decide there's a hole here or there. I need to add something. There may be an interesting question that I hadn't answered yet, and I need to go do some more research. So it's a very very time-intensive Process. My eyes have gotten progressively worse over the last ten or fifteen years when I've done most of my writing because I spend inordinate amounts of time sitting in front of a computer screen or reading uh, books. So that's basically how I go about it. It was overwhelming. I I am very I have I always have this arc to writing a book. When I start out writing the book, there is so much information I need to absorb that I feel a little bit panicky. I mean, am I really going to get through this? And what happens is after four, five, six, seven months, I've read so much that my brain has sort of mapped a lot of the connections between the material, and I feel more comfortable with it. But... I don't wanna disabuse any of your listeners. I am not now a meteorologist, nor do I play one. Uh, A lot of people have asked me after this book comes out some very detailed questions that only a trained meteorologist could really answer satisfactorily. And I gladly punt to you guys who know more than I do. I, I just was trying to write a book that would help expand this information to a broader audience.
1: Very interesting. I imagine, even though you say you're not a meteorologist, I imagine after doing all this research that when a a fresh hurricane comes up like uh, uh, Dorian last year or Laura this year, that you probably follow them in a lot different light than you would have before you did the book.
2: Oh, absolutely. I, I know a lot more of what's going on behind the scenes. And I'm not just I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to meteorologists. But I used to think about meteorologists and weather reporters as, you know, being talented, skilled people, but I really wasn't sure what went into it. After writing this book, I realized that the nuts and bolts and really understanding these hurricanes is a very complex process. And also communicating it to the public is a is a sort of like a tightrope between uh, providing information that is useful and helpful. And uh, not providing information that's going to cause unnecessary panic. And there's a lot on the line. And I really feel empathetic towards meteorologists who have to offer predictions, forecasts, which they necessarily know are limited. And no matter how much They tell the public about the cone of uncertainty or the uh, limitations of predictability and the fact that hurricanes can uh, rapidly intensify or change direction at the very last minute. I I really have some empathy for meteorologists because they're often held to such a high standard that if they say a hurricane is going to hit, let's say, New Orleans, but it actually hits 50 miles to the east, uh, a lot of people say, well, what, you know, you made us evacuate. Or that, I'm not talking about Katrina. I shouldn't have picked New Orleans because it sort of has an imprint on people's minds. But basically, one of the problems that I saw in writing this book is that when you forecast a hurricane to hit a certain area and it doesn't hit that area, And then a few years later, another hurricane is barreling towards the same area. And the meteorologists and the local politicians say, you need to evacuate. A lot of people say, well, you told us that last time and nothing happened. So we're less likely to take your advice this time around. And one of the things that I hope that people do after reading the book is give meteorologists more of a benefit of the doubt and understand that they only have your best interests at heart, and they're doing the best they can with uh, admittedly uncertain and unpredictable uh, information and forecasting tools.
1: That's very good insight, because that's exactly what uh, some of the wrestling we go through on the forecast for landfall is is not over, over covering an area, so we had too much evacuation or under covering it, so you trap people. And I, I don't know about you, but I, after rereading some of the old, uh, old days of so-called forecasting warnings. We, In our minds, we compare it. You can't help but filter it a little bit with how we do forecasting now, but I, I end up saying, how can anybody, They must have had a mental health problem in the meteorology field back in the 30s and before. He had no data at all on these storms, and yet they had yeah. to put out some kind of a forecast on them, and, it, and it's usually wrong when you don't yeah. have that. <laughs> yeah. You put out a lot in the book.
2: Well, almost, you you, you face a, a new kind of problem. There's much more information available to you. You've got these powerful computer models. You've got hurricane hunter planes that give you snapshots, real-time snapshots with all the fancy equipment on board and that you drop into the storm. You've got satellite data. data. You've got reports from ships at sea. You've got buoys out in the ocean you got so much information that it almost creates a situation where the public expects you to be flawless in your predictions. And the, the question is, why don't you do better when you have a bad prediction? But the thing is, when you have a prediction or a forecast and it ends ends up playing out exactly like you forecast it, it's almost like, OK, you know, you don't necessarily get the pat on the back. It's only the mistakes that people focus on a lot. And I I think that must be an awful lot of pressure. And you're lucky that you're part of the federal government and uh, uh, lawsuits are limited. Because I remember reading about Hurricane Audrey and I was fascinated to read that the people in Cameron and Louisiana, they actually filed a federal lawsuit against the uh, weather bureau saying that they made a mistake in the forecast and that resulted in the deaths of uh, way too many people. They they lost that lawsuit. I don't know if there have been other lawsuits since then, but uh, in this very litigious society, I think it, everything would grind to a halt if every time a f- weather forecast, much less a hurricane forecast, was not 100% accurate and somebody died. Uh, you, you get people so unwilling to give you a forecast for fear, fear of a meteorological malpractice suit that everything would grind to a halt.
1: Yeah. That, uh, it doesn't happen so much on the hurricane front with the meteorologists, but on aviation. there yeah, right. there's a crash of an airplane that's related to weather, then the the, the the lawsuits. I was I was at an office that had one of those. They sue everybody, everybody right. in the food chain involving that that crash, including the weatherman. And usually something else was the cause, and it goes on. But it, it has to weigh on you if you're in the in the leadership role and having to deal with that every day. Right. Tim, what what do you got on your mind this morning?
0: Well, I got a lot of things I want to ask about, but <laughs> but you know you you've done so much research, and I just want to go to this first because you know. Nine months of research before we even get started on it, really. So, in all that, what what surprised you? What made you go, oh, I didn't know this about hurricanes, or or I, you know, didn't expect to find this. Uh,
2: well, probably the number one thing, since I am an historian, I don't have a degree in history, but I'm an historian in the sense that I tell stories about history, and what I'm most fascinated in, fascinated about, is when uh, a situation or an event or some subject or topic steers American history. And so I was surprised in two ways. In going into the weeds of each individual hurricane, I realized the absolutely cataclysmic impact of these hurricanes on cities, towns, regions, and states. And uh, that reverberates throughout the entire economy, of course. But what interested me most and what surprised me most were the few examples that I found where a single hurricane, a single weather event, changed literally the course of American history. And I knew nothing about these hurricanes in the 1500s that hit Florida. But uh, you know, maybe some of your listeners will be aware of this. But I think most people have no idea that the Spanish tried to establish a colony in Pensacola in the mid-1550s, and they had 11 ships, hundreds of soldiers, hundreds of settlers, and they were going to make their uh, colonization effort and then spread out through the rest of the North American continent. But soon after they got there, a hurricane roared in, destroyed most of the ships ruined all of their food, killed many people, and uh, even though Spain and, and Mexico tried to recolonize the area, they were unsuccessful. Just imagine what would have happened if that colony had flourished in 1555, 1556, and the Spanish had started spreading out from there might have been a very different North American history. Then just 10 years later, there was a hurricane off the coast of eastern Florida. And this is a time when the French and the Spanish both were eyeing Florida as a place for colonization. And because they were sworn enemies of one another, the kings of each country had sent an enormous fleet to Florida to defend their interests. Well, the French fleet sailed down to St. Augustine to confront the Spanish fleet, duke it out, see who would have control of Florida. And then what happens? A hurricane roars in while the French fleet is off the coast of St. Augustine. It sends the entire fleet down the coast. They ram into Cape Canaveral, the shallows of Cape Canaveral. The entire fleet is destroyed. 200 people are killed in the boiling waters. The other 200 Marines and French soldiers struggle ashore. But by this time, the Spanish, who figured out that the French must have been caught in this hurricane, they first traveled north to go to the French fort where they killed numerous people in the French fort and sent the French packing in the few ships that they had. And then uh, Pedro Menendez, the Spanish general, marches down south to pick up the remains of the French fleet that had suffered that destruction at Cape Canaveral. And he captures 200 French Marines and soldiers, ties their hands behind their back, and then executes almost all of them, beheading them. Now, that gave Spain control of uh, Florida in the mid 16th century. Just imagine if the French fleet, which was quite powerful, quite capable, had overwhelmed the Spanish. And instead of becoming a Spanish colony, Florida had become a French colony in the 1600s. The entire history of North uh, North America might've been quite different. The French might've started spreading out going north from Florida, going south from Canada, the Voyagers and the fur traders, and we might not be having this conversation today. And that absolutely amazed me. I was also fascinated about uh, Christopher Columbus's fourth voyage and when he first encountered a hurricane. It didn't really change history, but it was just a fascinating account of how Westerners suddenly became aware of these monstrous storms. But perhaps the single biggest surprise and it it means a lot more to me now that I'm working on a book on the American Revolution, was the hurricanes in the Caribbean in 1780, uh, the Savannah Lamar hurricane in October, and just a week or two later, uh, the great uh, hurricane of 1780, still today the most deadly hurricane in the Atlantic. uh, Basically it destroyed numerous French and British warships who use the Caribbean as a place to duke it out for colonial possessions, but also as a staging area for the war in the American colonies. And these hurricanes come roaring in And many ships are destroyed. Many soldiers are killed. And it convinced the French, at least, that staying in the Caribbean during hurricane season was not such a great idea. So they repaired their ships during the winter of 1780-81. And in summer of 1781, the French fleet sailed north. Uh, both to escape the height of hurricane season, but also to aid their American allies, the colonists, in their battle against the British. So what does the French fleet do? It gets there before the British fleet. And then there's the Battle of the Capes of Virginia or the Battle of the Chesapeake, where the French vanquish the uh, late arriving British who had come down from New York and, and other areas. And by doing that, they gave George Washington and his French allies in Yorktown the opportunity to trounce Lord Charles Cornwallis and his British army, leading to the surrender on October 19th of 1781, which was a major turning point in the war. It wasn't the end of the war by a long shot. There were still two years to go, but it basically helped kick off what soon became peace negotiations between America and and the british but just imagine if the french uh, hadn't been uh, so impacted by those hurricanes another inflection in american history and uh, there there are smaller stories that are just as important to me i mean the hurricane of 1926 in Florida essentially brought the Great Depression to Florida three years before the rest of the country. Uh, The Lake Okeechobee hurricane of 1928, really, uh, when you look at it in hindsight, it shows uh, the, the horrible scars of racism and how they even come into play when there is a meteorological disaster. The hurricane of 1935, the Labor Day hurricane, fascinated me because of uh, its impact on veterans and just the whole arc of the story and their failure to get the veterans out of there in time and the accounts that were written. You go to the modern era and every single hurricane that people are still alive and know about has affected their life and are talked about. Uh, Hurricane Katrina is probably the poster child for hurricanes. Uh, It's so important of a national event that it's been used ever since as a shorthand term to describe some disaster that a president or a politician fails spectacularly to deal with, and as a result it influences the course of their future political career. So, I mean, hurricanes are very important. And the way that I look at every one of my books is it uses a specific topic as a narrative backbone to tell a larger story. Hurricanes, in this case, became a narrative backbone for me to tell a larger story about American history about the evolution of meteorology about politics about reporting on storms about satellite technology the naming of storms i mean all these interesting threads just came together in a book that was uh, just wonderful to research and write it was fun for me and uh, I, I hope it's fun for other people to read.
0: Well, you're answering, you know, the questions as they come in. It's amazing because we've got people asking questions and right after they ask it, uh, you've answered it. So that's that's impressive. Oh, okay. <laughs> Marcel just asked, do you think the hurricanes in South Florida in 26 and 28 influenced the economy in the region that helped ignite you know, the, the crash in 29? And, and you talked about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, basically, if you look at the history of Florida, it's just fascinating. It, Miami arose from almost nothing in the early 1900s, and within 20 years – uh, Miami was this booming metropolis where real estate transactions were going at the speed of light. There was a, It was basically, if you look in hindsight, it's the term that we use, a bubble. There was a real estate bubble. There was a hype bubble. John Kenneth Galbraith had a great quote. I can't remember off the top of my head verbatim, but it was basically uh, that in, in Miami and what was happening in Florida was in line with everybody's belief that it was people's God given right to be rich. Because everybody was trying to become rich in Florida and things were totally out of control. They were building right up to the edge of the ocean. They turned Miami Beach, which had formerly been mangroves and just beach land, very low level, into this metropolis of condos and apartments and houses. And what did they uh, reap from the hurricane of 1926? Severe destruction and all of that development, all of that hype, all of the excitement about South Florida just evaporated overnight. And then there was a second hit with the Lake Okeechobee hurricane in 1928. And and I'm not trying to pick on Miami. I've been there a number of times. I love Miami. Uh, But Miami, just like other communities that are built right along the edge of the ocean in places that are often struck by hurricanes, face special uh, situations when it comes to periodically being hammered by these storms. And I think it forces them or it should force them to be a little bit more proactive, thoughtful about their zoning laws and the decisions they make on a local and regional level so that each one of these hurricanes doesn't become a disaster that sets them back 10 or 20 years.
0: Another online question, and it just follows right into that. Some communities that have been just changed forever because of hurricanes, regions that have been changed, and their local history has been changed dramatically because of a hurricane. You know, Katrina is a modern-day example, but back to Indianola and places like that, just just their history's – I mean, just – it was a turning point, huge turning point.
2: Yep. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, every – Every major hurricane, and I'm not talking about major hurricanes in the sense of category three or above, but every one that leaves tremendous scars on the communities... Uh, is, is a seminal event. I met so many people while I was working on this book or I read accounts where people register their life as before or after the hurricane, before or after Audrey, before or after Carla, before or after Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, because it is such a pivotal event. Here I, li- I live in New England. I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts. I'm less than a quarter mile away from the ocean right now. Uh, No hurricane is going to hit my house, but hurricanes, the outer rims of Sandy and Hurricane Bob in 1991, really caused a lot of damage along the coast, even this far north. And uh, when you go back to the hurricane of 1938, which is a seminal hurricane for this region, killed 680 people, the most devastating natural disaster ever to strike New England. People who are very old still remember it. Their children remember it because their parents told stories about it. I, I I did a local television spot about the hurricane of 1938. And the response was amazing from so many people who either had lived through it, who had lost family members in it, and it's just a searing event that stays within a regional community's fabric for decades and perhaps even uh, centuries. And uh, it, it's it's just, uh, it was it was, an, it was fu- fun. Fun is the wrong word. I shouldn't use that word, but it was fun. It was interesting to write about it because what hurricanes come down to, to me, yes, they're a meteorological event. Yes, they have structural uh, elements that you talk about. But really, in the end, the stories that stick with you are the stories of human determination, survival, and tragically, uh, death. So uh, it's just, it's it's amazing. And I think, here, I'll put on, this is not my meteorologist hat because as I said, I'm not a meteorologist. But when I give talks in New England on this book, I end up by saying, you know, New England gets struck with a landfalling hurricane about once a decade or so. I know it varies depending on time frame you use. The last time that we were really clobbered by a major hurricane was the hurricane of 1938. There are other ones that were very severe, but that one was so traumatic. I think in my lifetime, there's gonna be another category two, three, maybe even a four that hits New England. Or Long Island or Connecticut, and uh, Connecticut, part of New England. So, uh, you know, I'm not wishing that that happens. It's, the, it's a strange position as somebody who's been asked questions about hurricanes. I don't want there to be hurricanes. When this book was coming out, this book was originally scheduled to come out on June 9th, but my publisher got in touch with me and they said, we're gonna bump it to August 4th because of COVID-19. By August 4th, we'll be all done with COVID-19 and you can have a regular book launch and go give talks and blah, blah, blah. Well, we know how that ended, but the book came out on August 4th. And a lot of people said, did you time it to coincide with the hurricane season? Yes, of course I did. But on August 4th was Hurricane Isaias. And uh, I remember the New York Times, the editor of the New York Times Book Review, tweeted that day and said, Dolan's book has to be one of the best-timed book launches of the year because our hurricane's roaring up the coast. And a lot of people have asked me, are you happy that we're living through a quasi, it's not yet truly historic hurricane season in my eyes. I mean, it's historic in that we've had so many of these storms, tropical storms and more hurricanes than normal, and we're into the Greek alphabet. But I, I think for this to be a truly historic hurricane season that we remember for years and years, we need a couple more big hurricane landfalls. That's my gut feeling. But people ask me, uh, are you happy that we're having all these hurricanes and all these tropical storms? Cause it gets more people interested in your book. And I say, absolutely not because I think about the devastation that uh, follows in the wake of all these hurricanes. Of course I want to sell more books, but I don't like that trade off, nor do I think that that's really there one other thing I just want to say that might be interesting to your listeners is I've written 14 books and I've had 14, quote unquote, book launches. This is the strangest, weirdest, most stressful book launch I have ever had. And to be honest, I believe that if this book had come out another year, it's doing well, but it would have done much better. Because think about it. The news media is focusing on the election, COVID-19, Black Lives Matter, fires in the, in the West, hurricanes as well. There are just so many big stories in the news right now that suck the oxygen and basically exhaust people that uh, it's very hard to get a message through about a new book. You know, all the books that are doing the best right now are about politics. But (laughs) so I'm not complaining. I'm just saying it's I just wanted to give you an insight as to a writer. You deal with external events. And this has been one roller coaster of a season, not only doing these Zoom events and Zoom talks, uh, but just being overwhelmed personally with an avalanche of information. And if we have a few more major hurricanes, that's gonna be, I remember seeing when when the first, when I think it was Isaias and uh, maybe it was Hannah or a couple of different hurricanes, I saw a bunch of tweets where people said, of course we're having a record hit hurricane season or early tropical storms. It's 2020, throw it into the heap, throw it into the mix. And this has been a year for the ages, I have to say.
1: Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, okay. The The, the 1938 hurricane is also one of my uh, uh, go-to hurricanes for societal impact. And I use some of the same benchmark you do. If people remember it generationally and beyond, there's something to it. I, I had a great aunt that, uh, was a secretary in Providence, Rhode Island, went to work that morning, and there was on the fifth floor, looking down on the square, there were the iconic pictures of the storm surge washing streetcars and people who were still out about, right. uh, not realizing what was hitting them. She could tell me till, she seemed to be in her 90s, she could tell me till the day she died exactly what she did those three days.
2: Yeah. yeah. The- I, I met people like that as well. Just think how serious it must be to see Houses being washed away, people dying. I mean, people that aren't in the area can read about it and can have emotional effect. But I can't imagine what it's like to be in a community that is struck in that way and have so many people that, you know, their life just ended uh, or changed uh, dramatically from there on out. It must be extremely uh, painful.
1: The uh, 1900 storm has the the fact that it carries on uh, once the survivors have passed on and time marches on. It's still uh, well remembered by uh, descendants of people that were in Galveston at the time of that storm, and it they keep bringing it up, and that helps portray the uh, the risks that Galvestonians live under down there. I think. Yeah.
2: It's still, from what I understand from uh, all the reports that have been done recently, Galveston area is one of the most, uh, the riskiest areas in terms of uh, hurricanes in in the future. Uh, And I have a question for me, since a lot of you are in Texas. I I get asked this a lot at my my talks. Why do people who live in areas that have been absolutely, uh, not destroyed, but Gravely impacted by hurricanes, sometimes more than once in a lifetime. Why did they choose to rebuild there? Why don't people relocate? And I have my answer, but I'm curious. uh, People are amazed that in Galveston, after it basically got wiped away in 1900, they didn't say, let's leave this little spit of sand which is sort of like Cape Cod South and go inland and get away from future hurricanes, they rolled up their sleeves, raised a lot of money and raised the entire island 14 feet and then built this massive wall to continue their life in this area that they always knew. And it's a very interesting question as to why people choose to rebuild in areas that are going to be slugged again by a powerful hurricane in the
1: future. I, I, I always question that too. So I ask people after multiple disasters, what's the driver? There's several things there for, for modern time here. A lot of people is that the, uh, their livelihood, their work is tied up with a right. job that they have here. Uh, others, they have strong family roots to the area. and It's just unthinkable to move. I think in Galveston's case, it was such a successful city before. right. They, at the at the time, they thought, "Okay, we'll fix this problem, and we'll go on to be another successful city."
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I I, I, look, I view it the pretty much the same way. And what's happening demographically in the United States is uh, there's still a lot of people moving to the coast. Real estate values on the ocean tell you that it's extremely desirable. There's something fundamental in human nature that draws people to the ocean, or at least many people to the ocean, and I don't think that's gonna change. But one of the things in working on this book that it made me think about more is how you can plan best for the future. I know my little hometown of Marblehead, they've been doing, they've hired scientists recently Uh, to come in and do analyses of how Marblehead is going to be impacted by the rise in uh, the levels of the ocean and potentially by global warming in the future. And they have these overlay maps that give you different scenarios. And when you look at the worst case scenarios, it is downright scary. But there are many things that people can do. I know in downtown Boston, which doesn't get hit by a lot of hurricanes, but gets hit by a lot of nor'easters, which are like cold hurricanes. Basically they're doing some better zoning uh, for buildings that are being built right along the edge of the harbor. No longer do you put all your utilities on the bottom floor or in the basement, you put them higher up. And so you can plan to some extent to do better in the face of a hurricane in the future. But the real problem is for these large cities like New York, which has been thinking about this for years, ever since Sandy hit for sure, the amounts of money involved to retrofit a city that's been around for hundreds of years and had relatively haphazard zoning to retrofit a city. So it becomes not hurricane proof, which is impossible, but uh, better able to deal with what Mother Nature has in store is an incredibly expensive and difficult proposition. And I don't envy the planners in major cities what they're confronting because they have limited resources, limited time, many projects they'd like to pursue. And hurricane preparedness is just one of many societal issues that we have to tackle. So it's just a phenomenally complicated issue, and when I, as a as a citizen, when I read the stories and the analyses done by meteorologists and scientists and planners who really focus on this stuff, and they talk about us potentially having stronger and wetter. Hurricanes in the future, maybe hurricanes like Harvey that will linger longer. They won't move as fast. There might be less wind shear on, off the East Coast. I mean, all of these things, and there are a lot of questions still about those studies. But when I read them, I sort of shuddered because I was thinking, just imagine if our future is worse, more intense than what we're dealing with now, and there are even more people living along the coast. It's, uh, it's just a scary proposition.
1: I think you got something there. The uh, the two parts I think the most of the, the intensity gets a little overplayed. It will, the the, the modeling and suggests it will be a, a tendency towards more intense, but they're already rare events. So a slight change in a rare event is still a rare event. Right. The rainfall, uh, we may already be seeing some of those impacts in, in the right. rainfall. And we know we're getting sea level rise. Uh, I moved here in 1992 and there were 450,000, citizens that lived in an area subject to storm surge. Uh, just by growth alone, we're now up to around a million people living in areas subject to wow. storm surge. And if you go into a two foot sea level rise, which is somewhere on a moderate curve by the end of the century, uh, a whole new ball game opens up for to where the, the 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 hurricanes of the category two level normal size storms, not a big ike and there right. is Building uh, more of the infrastructure than what we've seen in the past. So I don't know how you go backwards from that.
2: Yeah, well, re- related to that, one of the things that's come up a lot and I've tried to emphasize is people have a tendency to focus on the category level and they seem to get more amped up if it's a major uh, hurricane versus a category one. But all you have to do is point out to them that Harvey was a category one hurricane. Sandy was barely a category one hurricane when it struck in New Jersey, landfall in New Jersey. And we've had tropical storms just this year that have caused massive amounts of damage. So I think it would behoove people to focus less attention on the category number and uh, more attention on on the potential of a massive rain event. Because most of the problems with hurricanes are uh, are with water. I mean, storm surge, certainly a stronger hurricane, you probably have a bigger storm surge, but if you have 50 inches coming down any place along the coast or even 30 inches of rain within two days, you're going to end up having huge infrastructure problems and probably quite a few uh, deaths. So uh, instead of focusing so much on whether we have a major hurricane, uh, if we had 10 her, uh, tropical storms is in a row. That would be pretty traumatic. Um, so anyway, that's my, and I, I'm not on a soapbox. I mean, a lot of people have asked me, they, they always focus on the hurricane category. And to me, that seems less relevant uh, than what the actual storm brings with it.
1: Yeah, it depends. Certain storms like Michael or Dory in the category does convey what the big risk is. But like okay. you're saying, the, the, we've had five uh, known events here in Texas that produce 40 or more inches of rain, tropical. Uh, all of them were tropical storms. Harvey was a tropical storm when the big rain it right. the tropical storm and the big rain. So Harvey was kind of the outlier. I, I still count it as a hurricane because of the, it, it, by being that strong, it gave it time to loss to give that kind of rainfall. But the others were all weak tropical storms. Right. There's no such thing as just a, in the glossary of meteorology.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I do have one other question for you since you're experts in this, and I get asked this a lot, is do you think – given the complexity of the computer models and the quality of the data and taking into account chaos theory and other factors, do you think that 50 years from now, our ability to forecast hurricanes is going to be dramatically better than it is now? Are the cones of uncertainty going to shrink to a great degree, or are we getting to the range of or limits of predictability? I get that question a lot, and I don't know how to answer
1: it. Uh, when I started out a, a one-day forecast, of, the hurricane forecast was one-day uh, specific and a two-day outlook. The uh, average error at uh, 24 hours is 125 nautical miles, and wow. uh, Dr. Simpson, who was director at the time of the Hurricane Center, said he doubted we'd see anything better than 100. <laughs> My answer to you is I have no idea, but I almost, I, if i could be reincarnated and bet money on it i'd bet the, i'd be all in that we're going to see dramatic improvements especially on on the impacts the intensity the surge where the rain's going to be things like that right okay
0: good yeah it seems to me it's the human impact the human response that, that it lags behind you know we can we can predict it down to the mile and then people still respond the way they respond
1: right so we can evolve as fast as technology that's <laughs> Yes.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So bill uh maybe one one final question and then we'll we'll begin to wrap up.
1: Uh I know what had asked for you I think was what uh, of those hurricanes what were you, which one would you call your most fascinating? I wouldn't say favorite but fascinating.
2: Yeah, favorite's a tough word to use in a hurricane. Um the most fascinating uh I'd have to say it's two of the ones we've talked about, or maybe three of them, because they had different elements, human elements. The Galveston Hurricane of 1900 has to be on your short list because of the role that Isaac Klein played, the local meteorologist versus headquarters, the history that it involves, how they were sort of blind to history that was actually there if they had dug, they may have had a better perspective on whether or not they were going to get struck by a hurricane. I also found the interaction or lack of interaction between Cuban meteorologists and weather forecasters and the Americans leading up to that, a fascinating uh, sort of view of uh, America at that time and uh, issues of condescension and, I believe, race. Uh, So the Galveston hurricane is fascinating because it has so many good stories. It was so well-documented. The hurricane in 1938 again, because it was so well-documented and it had some elements like the uh, the Long Island Express element and its rapid uh, up speed up the coast. Uh, the fact that there were very few ships in its way that gave reports to the land and the, the way in which it uh, did a number on New England is just fascinating. And Hurricane Katrina, of course, again, because it was so well-covered, but had Uh, so many different elements to it. Political failure, bureaucratic failure. Uh, It it talked about the limits of forecasting. There was great stuff about Max Mayfield and his interaction with the politicians and trying to communicate the potential threat of this hurricane. So those are the three that I found most interesting to write about because there was a huge amount of information, a huge amount of dramatic information and first-person accounts that I could uh, pull from, but I, I would also say that a lot of the other hurricanes, the four hurricanes that struck in 1893, were fascinating because you know they killed between two and four thousand people, but they had such different communities they struck, and the different ways in which people responded uh, was to me. Um, really interesting. I think some of the older hurricanes, the hurricane of 1635, the great colonial hurricane, there isn't a huge amount of data on it. There are a couple of first person accounts. It would be even more interesting if we had more first person accounts, more diaries that really went into detail about that. But uh, So those are some of my quote unquote favorite hurricanes. But I have heard from people who have said, in fact I just got an email yesterday, a woman said, did you cover hurricane Michael in your book? And I had to write back. I said, not really much. I have a picture of Michael and a caption. That's about it. And she was a little upset, I think, or disappointed. And I had to point out, you know, There are hundreds and hundreds of hurricanes. I had to make decisions. The same thing happened with my pirate book and my lighthouse book. Your favorite pirate's not in there or your favorite lighthouse. So hopefully, even if your favorite hurricane isn't in the book, you still get something out of it because it gives you a context for understanding the situation that you live through.
1: That's interesting. I think the newer storms, uh, in my opinion, they have to bake for a few years before you know what the historical impact of them is. Yeah, well, well, Eric, I'm, I'm just so glad you wrote this book. It, it was fun to read. I, I, uh, I, I, you, you're on the same wavelength that most of us are on, which is fascinating to find a, an author that's not in our field that catches on stuff that we beat our heads against the wall about not convincing people on. So okay, well, thanks for being with us today. Well,
0: thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I, I concur with that. It's nice to have a non-meteorologist write a book because it's a lot less technical, probably, if one of us had even given an effort to write this. So we appreciate it. the book, Eric J. Dolan, A Furious Sky. Where can people get the book, Eric?
2: Oh, any bookstore, online, Amazon, Barnes and & Noble. And if you want an autographed copy, you can go to my website, ericjdolan.com, and I send out. I'll inscribe it any way you want. The funniest inscription I did is somebody asked me to write in there, I couldn't have written this book without you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. I, I love didn't it. know the person. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter, right? <laughs> well, we, we appreciate your time, Eric, and uh, and thank you so much. Fascinating insight. Uh, history that you know some of us have studied a little bit, some others a lot more, but just fascinating history. So, thank you, Eric J. Dolan, author of *Furious Sky: The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes*. Want well, to thank all our sponsors today once again: uh, USAA, Plylocks, and the South Pottery Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. We appreciate all they do for us to make this happen. Uh, and uh, th- this show was one of the best. We really appreciate it. So, thanks for the thanks for the history lesson, Eric, and all the all the fascinating thanks stuff. Thanks for joining us on Hurricane Center. Produced by the Storm Science Network and made possible by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. You can find other episodes on HurricaneCenterLive.com.